0: Well, good morning to all of you. Um, I've got greetings from Cornerstone Church in Ames. I'm one of the pastors there, and it is a privilege to be with all of you guys today. I had the privilege of being the director of Salt Company um, up until last year in Ames, and so actually a ton of you guys out here are alumni from there, and so it's good to be up here with you. I was comparing Minneapolis to Ames, Iowa, and really, honestly, it's almost exactly the same, minus like you have like two million more people and absolutely everything is better here, but other than that, (laughs) Ames and Minneapolis are almost an exact replica, so if you've been to the one, it's like you've been to the other. and, and I mean, it's cool to be with you guys. Our church does not have a chandelier. And so I feel like, man, that is pretty big time. And so, yeah, it just makes me feel right at home. So I'm absolutely thrilled about this. This church is the answer to so many prayers that we've prayed um, at Cornerstone. So for years, our church has just dreamed of, God, would you do something through us to see the movement of the gospel go out to new places and new people. And so to see this church birthed is just a tremendous answer to prayer. Throughout the Salt Network, if you don't know the kind of family of the Salt Network, you'll get to know it over time. But right now there are 12 churches in that family. There are two more on the way, planning to be planted next fall, one at Michigan State University in Lansing, Michigan, another at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. So if you're sick of cold, Hey, guys, Gainesville, Florida is going to be a great church next year. So we're really just thrilled by what God is doing there. And so just all of that is driven not by a need to be big, but we, we believe, honestly, that small dreams for a great God dishonor him. And so we're asking God to do something incredible, and we're seeing God even begin to do that right now. This fall, on our kickoff weekends for salt companies across the Midwest, we had just shy of 6,000 students out at salt company kickoffs. And that same weekend in our churches, we had just shy of 11,000. So that just, I just want you to know you're part of something way bigger than you. That's pretty cool. So it's a huge privilege to see that. It honestly reminds me what we're beginning to see here of the sort of movement of God that we read in the book of Acts. I mean, you read about God is doing things by his spirit and people are coming to faith in Christ. They're declaring that faith in Jesus and there's this movement of the church beginning to take over the Greco-Roman world. That's what we read about in Acts and just seeing a little taste of that in our day. What an incredible privilege. So if you have a Bible, I actually wanna open up the book of Acts with you. I'm gonna be in Acts chapter three today, continuing on in your series going through the book of Acts. And so in Acts chapter three, we're going to look at what is like one of my absolute favorite stories in all of the Bible. And so I just want to dig into it. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the whole chapter together, but I just want to read it all so we have a frame of reference to where we're going, and then we'll dive in together at breaking this down. So Acts chapter three, I'm going to start in verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then... Taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong, so he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple, so they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the, temple, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Which is pausing here. That has to be the silliest thing I have ever read in the Bible. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at the lame man leaping and walking? Is that not self-explanatory? We're amazed because the lame guy is leaping and walking. Whatever, okay. Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, we are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent, And turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. Whom God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those after him had also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors saying to Abraham and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Acts chapter three, it's an incredible miracle. And where we're gonna go today, I'm just gonna break this down three ways. So if you need a roadmap to take notes, here's the way we go. First, I wanna see how the power of Jesus in the book of Acts is displayed by powerful works and a powerful witness. They always come connected. You never see just an amazing miracle because the disciples are not like fortune-telling mythological magicians. No, they're working miracles by the power of Jesus so that they can witness what words to the power of Jesus. Powerful works and powerful witness. Second, we'll see the sermon that he preached in Acts chapter three gives us four pieces of evidence that demands a verdict for who we say Jesus is. And then third, we'll look at who the sermon's hearers were. These people were biblically literate. They knew the Bible and spiritually dead. It's totally possible to understand with your mind the message of this book and have no idea the power of the person of Christ. So, First off, the power of Jesus displayed in powerful works and a powerful witness. Okay, so what happens in this story is like what happens in the book of Acts all over the place. There's a sort of incredible miracle that happens. Someone is healed, someone is raised up, and it is followed by a powerful sermon. Okay, so in the book of Acts, if they had a worship service, they don't have a band up here. It's like, hey, this dude is uh, not able to walk, let's heal him, and then I would be preaching. At which point, you are pretty stunned. I mean, the band was good, but the healing, that's a little stronger. And so in Acts 2, we see this, that Acts 2, there's miraculous tongues that fall on Peter, and he preaches, and everyone hears in their own language, there's an incredible, powerful work, and then... Peter explains what happens. He says, hey, what happened here? I'm gonna explain that to you. He preaches a powerful sermon of witness. Here, the lame beggar reaches out for money, and boom, he's leaping. He's skipping. Did did you see that? Like, he didn't just walk along, he was leaping, which that's, in the Greek, it means skipping, frolicking. I made that up. Not true. No, (laughs) here's the thing. He was, though, he was so happy he could not just walk. They said, Hey, rise up and walk, and he starts skipping his way to the temple. He's so thrilled by the work of God. He, I mean, imagine being the beggar, right? In this story, he he says, Hey, guys, could I have some silver and gold? They turn to him, and their first words are, We don't have any money. At which point, he's like, Man, that stinks. that he's not asking it to be healed. He's asking for a couple bucks. So they, they, silver and gold, we have none. Which by the way, there's a lot of college students here. This is one of my favorite stories. It has nothing to do with the text of scripture. I'm just gonna share it with you. Um, a friend of mine is a pastor of a church in North Carolina. It's, the, that church started a lot like this, okay? And this was a church where they were actually pretty old school. They passed offering plates along, Right, And when this church was just starting, it was like a whole bunch of college students and then a few community people. And they would pass the plates trying to get enough money to fund the church, right? And so the plates went along and one week they received a sausage croissant (laughs) from Burger King in one of the offering plates with a note tacked to it, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. (laughs) And it was from one of the college students. I'm not saying you do that, students, okay? We're not about that, All right. I just love the story. It has nothing to do with the text of scripture, but I love the story. So this guy says, Peter, John, I I need some money. And they say, we don't have any money. And he's bummed, but what we do have is the power of Jesus to heal you. So rise up and walk. He goes from bummed to stunned in like an instant. And, And if you think about it, this guy's been crippled for a while. He's begging for a living. To say to a person who's crippled, hey, why don't you get up and walk, is a terrible insult. You don't ever do that to someone. So I'm trying to imagine his emotion. He goes from bummed, like, you don't have any money, then they say, rise up and walk, and I think for one millisecond, he's thinking, who in the world do you think you are to tell me that? And then he's standing you gotta think of just the unbelievable swirl of emotions happening to this guy. He is stunned. He leaps and skips his way to the temple and the crowds around him are astounded, amazed, and shocked. And then what happens is that powerful work and evidence that the risen Christ has the ability to transform and change people is paired up now with a powerful witness. Peter explains with his words what happened in front of their sight. Powerful works powerful witness. There's gonna be the pattern in the book of Acts as you go through it, it happens here. And I want you to think about this just for a bit. We've thought about the works, I want you to think about the witness. What does a witness do? Like think of it, it's a courtroom term, right? You're familiar with that. Witnesses in the court of law, they give an account of what they know from their experience, So you have different types of witnesses. You have eyewitness testimony. You have expert witness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is what we're seeing here. An eyewitness doesn't tell you everything about the events that happened. They tell you plainly what they have observed through their experience. And Jesus said to his disciples earlier in the book of Acts, he said, when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, he says, you're gonna be my witnesses. He didn't say, you're gonna be my experts. He said, you're gonna be my witnesses, You're going to tell the people around you what you know from the experience of your life to be true. The mark of a good witness, I'm just going to say it this way and I'm going to explain this. The mark of a good witness is not their expertise, but their authenticity and their honesty to what they've experienced. Like, for instance, let's say driving in here today... You were uh, looking over at the beautiful soccer stadium that's getting built right now and you are looking at that and actually a lot of the people on the road were looking at that and the dude in front of you just rear ends, he just smokes the car in front of him, just nails him and then the police officer shows up to get a report on the scene and he sits down and he goes, man, did you see it? Describe it to me and you say, oh, I don't know, man. He was looking at the soccer stadium because people love that sport in America and, and he just smoked that car. And then he goes, well, I want no, what I'm asking for is I want you to describe the the physics involved. Like, actually, what's the tensile strength of the steel that was in the midst of, and you're thinking, I have not had that class. I don't, (laughs) I I have no idea what you're, he's like, no, I just, what I'm saying is I need to know what happened and you need to describe, you see, what would he be doing? He would be asking you as an eyewitness to perform like an expert. Okay? Many of us part of the reason we're afraid to share what we know about Jesus with the people around us is we're convinced they're gonna turn on us and ask us to be an expert, not an eyewitness, right? You're talking to your buddy and you're like, I know, but he's gonna ask me a question and I don't know. I don't know how old the age of the earth is and what the Bible says. I'm not sure. I don't know these questions. What I'm telling you is then just tell them, well, I don't know. And tell them what you do know. I don't know that, but I know what Jesus has done for me, because you're an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, the power of him in your life, not an eyewit- not an expert to it. I still remember I gave my life to Jesus my, going into my junior year of high school, and I just had this overwhelming desire to tell people about him. and. I did not know everything. I still remember talking to my buddy Andy. We're at a party because I, it was like that type of transition in my life. I'm like, well, this is what I do, so I have Jesus now, so I need to go to this party and I'm just gonna gospel bomb these people, man. <laughs> and that was like my idea. I started throwing like pool parties and like to trick people into hearing about Jesus, which is not the way to do it, okay, but whatever. So I show up and I'm like, I'm gonna gospel bomb this dude, Andy, and I start sharing with him about Jesus. And Andy and I were outside this party, we're looking up at the stars, and he goes, Listen, Vance, I understand what you're saying. I get the facts of it, but what I wanna know is if a God was big enough to say that could start, why won't he just talk to me if I say, Hey, God, are you there? And I thought, Dang, that is a super good question. <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't, I was, I'm like, huh. Oh. I don't know if I have an answer to that. So here's what I said. I don't really know, Andy. Here's what I know. Jesus has changed my life, and I think he could change yours too. See, I couldn't be an expert, but I could be a witness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to underline this again for you. The mark in your life of you being a good witness will not be your expertise, but your authenticity. Are you willing to just tell somebody authentically what Jesus is doing in you and has done for you? If so, you can be a great witness, even if you're not an expert. And time and time again in my life, I have shared a simple story over and over and watched God do incredible things through that. And you might say, well Mark, you're fairly persuasive, you are paid to do this. I Guys, I, you have to understand my job, I am basically paid to say the same thing repetitively over and over. Jesus can save you from your sins. You should repent and believe in him. That is the whole message of everything in my life, which means in terms of like many of you are doing professions where I'm just amazed at your level of skill, because I show up and talk. That's all I do. <laughs> and, then, and then just pray that God does something incredible through that. God has again and again just used a really simple witness to actually do a powerful work in people around me where people who were dead in their sins come alive in Christ, And it's not because I had expertise. It's not because I had eloquence. Because no matter how eloquent you are, you cannot call dead people to life. Did you know that eloquence doesn't raise the dead? Eloquence has no power to change a person who is dead spiritually to a person who's alive spiritually. The Spirit of God can do that. From the moment I met Jesus, I have just tried to tell people about him with what I knew. And I know more now than I did then, but I'll tell you, I've chickened out more times than I have followed through. And 100% of the time that I have not told people about Jesus, nothing happened to them. Did you notice that? 100% of the time, people don't hear about Jesus, they don't receive him. Because you cannot give your life to someone you know nothing about. I'm not asking you to be an expert to the resurrection of Christ. I'm asking you, based on what Jesus has done in your life, to be a witness to what he's done and to who he is. Just tell people what you do know. And if they ask you a question you don't understand, tell them, I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. And you just tell people what Christ has done in you. Open your mouth up and be a witness. Are you willing to be a witness to the powerful work that God's done in you? You don't need to see a guy raised up, who is lame, because you've been raised from dead in your sins to alive in Christ. So tell people about that powerful miracle. That's what it means to be a witness. And when he spoke up, what did he say? Okay, so we've seen the powerful works, powerful witness. Now we're going to look at the sermon In the sermon, I'm gonna call this, the sermon in chapter three, evidence about Jesus that demands a verdict. And I'm gonna point out four things that Peter shares in his sermon about Jesus, okay? Four brief evidences about the person of Jesus that you have to think through. Here's the first one. The first evidence is the content of the preaching is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Okay, that's the first evidence. You're gonna note this all through the book of Acts. The first evidence is the content of the preaching. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What that means is when Peter and the guys in the book of Acts preach they quote all the time from the old testament scriptures and did you notice he's going to say things like this is what god said he would do god the prophets said that the messiah had to suffer they're saying jesus is not something new he is connected to a much older story he's the fulfillment of everything that god spoke all that god had been doing in the old testament through israel's history through the prophets jesus is the king that the old testament promised He's the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of. Jesus is not a new story. He's part of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these guys connect the story of Jesus to the story of the Bible. It's very important because it means that Christianity is not just something new, a blip on the radar out of nowhere, it's the fulfillment of what God had been doing. Okay, second evidence for Christ. I want you to consider where they're preaching, the location of Peter preaching Peter is preaching, where does he share it? He's preaching in Jerusalem. Okay, so here's why this is significant. Where was Jesus crucified? Where was he put to death? Jerusalem, okay? You're not experts, but you can still talk back at that point because it's fairly obvious what I'm asking for, okay? So (laughs) he was crucified in the town where Peter's preaching. Okay, so again, you gotta just get yourself back there historically. He's in Jerusalem and he's saying, guys, you remember the dude who was killed right over there. He's alive. I saw him. God raised him up. The guy who was killed there is alive. Okay, if, if Peter is lying, the movement of Christianity should have ended that day. Because based on the location of the speech, people in the crowd could have gone, "Um, I do not believe you. Let's go find the body. Because it's the same town. You You can't make up a lie about a dead person alive again in the town where he's supposedly buried. Okay, for instance, I was looking up facts about Minneapolis. You know, Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, he was like from Minneapolis, Famous dude from Minneapolis. Let's say I show up in the middle of Minneapolis and I say, guys, I don't know if you know this, but the dude who created the Peanuts cartoon, Charles M. Schultz, he's alive and he lives in my basement. He's straight up alive. And I say that's in Minneapolis. And by the way, I've started writing songs about him and we're like worshiping him as God and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, If I say that, people are gonna look at me and go, uh, no, 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 no. I know where the dude's buried. It's right over here. Let's just go look at it. Do you see the point that I'm making? If you're gonna make up a story of a dude being raised from the dead, the one place in the world you can't do it is the place where he died and was buried. You can't do it there. One of the great proofs, evidences that demands a verdict about Jesus is that if he rose from the dead, the movement claiming him to be alive from the dead would never have started in the city where he died. It can't happen. Because if he's dead and buried in Jerusalem, you end the movement by walking down the street to the grave. Christianity's done in its inception. Okay, there's a third evidence for Jesus in here. Not just the location of the preaching, but the time frame of the preaching. When does Peter preach this? It's really not more than a month or two after when Christ is raised from the dead. It is very quick after it. And I want you to look at verse 14. He says something really interesting about Jesus. Chapter three, verse 14. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one and have asked to have a murderer released to you. Verse 15, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. You denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the source of all life I don't care what you think about your friend or your teacher, you don't call them the holy and righteous one and the author of all life. Like if you're hanging out with your dorm, like your roommate, and you're like, man, you're just, you are the author of life. You guys need to take a walk because you got something messed up in your relationship. That's not normal. You don't call people God. (laughs) Do you follow what I'm saying here? Jesus, to call him the author of life is not just some small claim, like he's a pretty good teacher. No, he's the author of existence. That's a claim that Jesus is God. Now, why is it important to say that happens within a month or two among the early Christians after his resurrection. Because I don't know if you guys are running into this at all, but culturally, one of the really popular counters to Christianity is people say, Christianity developed over time. The early Christians didn't actually worship Jesus as God. That's a later addition to hundreds of years before Christians actually said that. That, by the way, is what they teach in religion classes at Iowa State. I've talked with the professors about that. Here's my point. This text here says they were calling him God within a month of when he was raised from the dead. Not hundreds of years, not developed over time. Within two months, they're not simply saying Jesus is a good moral teacher, they're saying he is the author of life risen from the dead. It may be popular to say that Christianity and the worship of Jesus as God or the deity of Christ is something that is made up and developed over time but it is simply not true to all of the earliest Christian texts that we have. It's not honest. Here's the fourth evidence for Jesus inside of this. He's connected to the Old Testament. It's preached in Jerusalem. It's done so in an incredibly early time frame. And then the fourth thing is the end of his preaching. I want you to see verse 21 again. He says, heaven will receive him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets through the beginning. The fourth note of Peter's preaching is the end of it is to say the end of the age is here and one day Jesus will return. The restoration of all things is gonna occur through him. So I'm gonna outline the preaching that Peter just gave. This is the common apostolic preaching in the early church. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures, one, Jesus was physically raised from the dead after being crucified, buried in Jerusalem. Three, Jesus is God in human flesh and we worship him as such. And four, one day Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. Okay, that, those four points, that is what Christians call the gospel or the good news about Jesus. It is the message that Peter has been preaching we have been just basically playing a 2,000-year telephone game. What he said, I'm trying to say today. This Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. He was crucified, buried, and then rose from the dead in Jerusalem. This Jesus who did that is God in human flesh, and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. That is evidence that demands a verdict out of you, You have two options today really hearing this that are intellectually credible. You can either say that is hogwash and completely reject it or you should repent and turn your life over to Jesus. You should not be able to leave here neutral. Well, I I think it's a pretty good idea that no, it's not. It's either true and it demands your your full surrender. You have it all, Lord. Not 75% to Jesus, but all of it. Or, It's not. You just walk away. Repentance is what is demanded. Peter says, hearing this, you should repent and turn away from your sins. So I really want to ask you, what will you do with those four pieces of evidence? Like, do you believe those things? The same truths they preached are the claims that I'm pressing on you today. Do you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures, that he is God's king come to earth? Do you believe that he died and was risen from the dead physically, bodily, in Jerusalem? Do you believe that Jesus is God in human flesh and do you believe that one day he will return to rule and to reign? If so, then have you repented and surrendered your life to follow King Jesus Jesus? Have you turned over all of it to him? Today should be in a sort of fork in the road. Really, every time you hear the good news of Jesus, it's a fork in the road. Either I believe it or I don't. If all of this is true of Jesus, you should not be able actually to live a normal life anymore. You should either reject him or repent. One of those two. There shouldn't be neutral. Now, Let me pause here just for a second. Some of you might be saying, I don't know if I'm neutral, but I'm still assessing it and thinking it through. And I wanna say to you, this is a great place to do that. Questioners and processors are welcome. And I still have actually a ton of unanswered questions in my own head about the nature of Christianity. I haven't figured everything out about this. But these four truths, I cannot get around their reality. And so what I did when I turned my life over to Jesus is I said, Jesus, I have about 100,000 other questions I feel like about who you are and about why you let evil in the world and about whether Jonah was really swallowed by a big fish because that sounds completely ludicrous to me. And I don't know about Goliath being 11 years old, but I can't get around the fact that you died, were buried, and rose again. I couldn't deny its reality. So I had to repent. You don't have to have everything figured out as a questioner To say, I have enough, Jesus, to put your ring on my finger and say, I'm going to give my life to you. Back on. And for many people here, many people in many of the audiences that I speak to, actually the biggest problem they have is not that they don't understand the facts about God, but that they don't have a personal passion for Christ In other words, they know the facts with their brain, but they're not alive in their heart because it's totally possible to actually be biblically literate and spiritually dead. That's the third point. I want you to look at the hearers of this sermon. Look at verse 11 again. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran toward them and was called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant Jacob. What's he doing? Peter, why are you confused here, guys, about what's happening? Why are you amazed? He's not, making, he's not saying the miracle was not remarkable. What he's saying is this. You are ignoring facts that you should already know about God's power. You profess to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has worked miracles before. This should not shock you because he's a God who can do that. Why are you confused? Verse 17, look at verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, I know when you crucified Jesus, you acted in, what's the word there? Ignorance. Ignorance. Let's pause for a second here. Who are the ignorant people that Peter is talking to? Where are these people? They're at the temple. People in the midst of the temple are not spiritually ignorant. They're spiritually engaged. They came out of their normal life to go to the temple to hear. These people aren't just like, nominally involved in some sort of religious activity, the people in front of Jesus, or in front of Peter there are religious Jews who are active in pursuing their faith, people who came to pray, who knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. They were d- deeply religious. They lived their lives live, like longing for the Messiah of God to come and the King to come and save them. And so to people who their whole lives have been spent in religious pursuit, Peter says to them, you're ignorant spiritually. That is a tremendous insult to a first century religious Jew. They would have said, no, the the Gentiles are ignorant spiritually. The people out there, the pagans, but we are engaged. We're the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Biblically literate people and yet spiritually ignorant. Spiritually dead. It is totally possible then, it's totally possible today to be biblically literate and spiritually dead, to know your Bible inside and out and not to know Christ. I know that because that was literally my story. I grew up steeped in the Bible. Like kids grew up playing house, I grew up playing church, actually playing church. Like, my dad will tell stories of me at three years old sitting him down, and my next-door neighbor would come over, Sarah, she was four, and she would play the organ and do a special music offertory because we grew up in that sort of church, you know? Sort of church that they told you if you listen to rock music, you're gonna do heroin and kill your parents. That's the sort of thing that I grew up in. And, and so I, I grew up, I mean, really conservative. I mean, I would thunder at three and just yell at my dad, you, sir, need to be saved. You're going to hell, which at 3, I mean that's pretty intense. <laughs> my family, they were all Christians and if you would have asked me, Mark, is are the facts of Christianity true? I would never have had a time in my life where I said no to that. I always thought it was credible intellectually. I had questions about it, but I couldn't deny the resurrection of Christ. I could have given you mental assent to a list of facts about Jesus. The problem was this I had all the mental understanding, but I was dead spiritually. I had no passion for the person of Christ. I knew about him, but I didn't know him. It's totally possible to know about Jesus and not know him. It's totally possible. It's one of the most common things we read about in the scriptures is groups of people like the Pharisees whose heads are full of religious facts but whose heart has no spiritual life. It is totally possible to be biblically literate and spiritually dead. And so for me, at age 17, I just came to a decisive fork in the road where I couldn't ignore Jesus anymore and either I was gonna go all in or I was out. What do you need today if that's you? You need the powerful work of God to happen for you today as you hear a powerful witness about Jesus. You need the facts of the gospel to not just become things you give mental assent to, but things you're willing to bank your life on. You're willing to say you can have it all, Jesus, because this is who I think you are. You need the truth to explode on you. You need a personal encounter with the living Christ. You need to happen to you what happened for many who heard in Acts 3. I want you to look at just the next chapter, Acts chapter four, in verse four. What happened to many who heard? It says, many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's what many of us need today. Many of us who hear the message, what we need is for that to happen, for God to do something where the truth that's there becomes beautiful and we believe. We repent, we lay all we are into all that Jesus is. We trust in him. God, make that so in all of us. I pray for us. Jesus, I first want to just pause and say thank you for Salt City Church for the answer it is to so many prayers that I have prayed. And it it's just. I'm overwhelmed in gratitude today to you. Thank you just for what you're doing here in the cities, this beautiful work. May it increase, God. And I pray that the increase in this work would not just be the addition of people who wanna come hear nice talks about a historical thing, but that the increase that you would bring to this church would be people who literally go from death to life, who go from biblically literate and spiritually dead to people who have a passion for the person of Christ. I pray for the people who are here today who actually just need that decisive moment to repent and believe the gospel. And maybe for those of us who, like me, we've seen, we've tasted and seen God, would today be just a fresh taste of the goodness of your grace in Jesus. Would you again remind us of the certainty of our faith? Would you again strengthen our hearts? Would you leave us again today as we look at the person and work of Jesus, lost in worship, wonder, awe, and praise? Jesus, you're amazing, and we love you. We pray it all in your name, amen.